0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for attending. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the CEO of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. And uh, let me begin by acknowledging that we're meeting today on the traditional lands of the uh, Ngunnawal people, and we uh, pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is a really special day for us at the United States Study Center. The launch of what is going to be an annual publication for the center the State of the United States, and this year the subtitle, An Evolving Alliance Agenda. Let me just take a minute or two to set a little bit of context for why that report, and why now, and why annual. Two things have been going on, one here in Canberra and in the world, and another one back at the United States Studies Centre that I want to I talk about uh, real briefly as well. Um, one is the way that the pace of geostrategic change in the Indo-Pacific has stepped up um, over the last decade or so, and in particular over the last five years, coinciding with my time uh, as leading uh, the US Study Center. The traditional boundaries that used to exist in policy domains have collapsed between security and foreign policy on one hand, trade and investment on the other, and indeed we've been pulling in new words to help us make sense of this world, worlds like words like geoeconomics. To talk about the way that tools of economic statecraft have come roaring back uh, to be front and center in the ways that states project power and influence and that has an implication for any serious think tank um, and the way you serve up your product to an audience here in canberra and at the u.s study center for us that has meant concentrating on combining the work we do building bridges across those heretofore seemingly unrelated domains of policy analysis because now they are related and hence producing long-form reports that do a, a survey of that very fast developing policy terrain and the other thing to note why now is that we are relatively we're still early in this Biden administration that's to be sure but we have um, a ways to go before the first OSMIN between the new Biden administration and this Australian government. And our intention is to put our shoulder to the wheel, to create a product that can meaningfully inform the conversations in buildings all around us ahead of that first OSMIN, but mindful of all that context I just laid out, the rapid pace of change, the burgeoning agenda for this alliance and that's what this volume surveys today that informs the organization of today why it is uh, three three or four panels actually Um, and it also um, why we're delighted to have to help us introduce the event uh, ambassador atul kesha principal deputy assistant secretary of state um, from joining us on the line there from the united states great to have you with us um, ambassador Keship's career literally embodies the notion of an Indo-Pacific, uh, a focus on the Australia-US alliance. He served as ambassador to Sri Lanka, ambassador to the Maldives, and he served in India as well. But critically, uh, he serves now as um, with carriage for the Bureau of East Asian Affairs, where sits a very important part of the world for the Biden administration, um, but, but carriage um, of what pleasingly from this new administration in Washington, is clearly a foreign policy priority number one. You know The timing of this is we didn't plan it this way, but here we are meeting this morning on the back of the weekends, uh, well, Friday night into Saturday, uh, the Quad Leaders meeting, um, the Secretaries of Defense and Secretaries of Sta- uh, and, and State for the United States uh, in um, Japan and Korea, and on the way and, and headed to Alaska to meet um, uh, Chinese officials as well. Um, the signs out of this administration as the priority of the Indo-Pacific couldn't be any stronger. Uh, And for that reason we're delighted to have Ambassador Kesha uh, offer a few remarks to help us get underway this morning our time, this afternoon in Washington. Thank you Ambassador. Um, The floor is yours to help us get started here this morning. Thank you.
1: All right the biggest challenge is always pressing the unmute button. So I hope you guys can see me see me and hear me we
0: can not a problem
1: Wonderful. well simon for me that that marks a successful speech right there and thank you very much to the united states studies center uh, in, for inviting me and permitting me to address all of you who are over there in canberra i was just looking back a little bit and when i was u.s envoy for apec uh, i had the privilege of addressing the u.s studies center uh, in sydney uh, back in 2013. So it's great to do this again. I think I also spoke to a gathering of the U.S. Studies Center from Washington in uh, November of 2019. So I guess I'm a repeat offender uh, for which I thank you. And Gordon, since you're there as well, let me also just say how, uh, what a privilege it was for me to attend not one, but two Australia-hosted sessions of the Indian Ocean Rim Association in Perth. Uh, I believe, in 2013 and 2014. Uh, it was great fun. Perth's a great city. Uh, and uh, I really learned a lot from uh, those experiences. So it really is a delight for me to be able to speak to all of you. Simon, I echo everything that you said. Uh, it's a bright, sunny day here in Washington at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I feel like there's a very bright future uh, for U.S.-Australia relations, building on uh, an absolutely superb century of, uh, of mateship and true solidarity. Uh, Of course, I don't need to tell you anything you don't know, Australia is a longstanding ally and partner. Australia and the United States have had a proud history of assisting one another in times of crisis. The relationship between the United States and Australia is without question one of our strongest, and most importantly, it will continue to be one of our strongest for many, many years and decades to come. There is no further proof of this required except to visit the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, as I was very privileged to do in 2013. Looking at those walls and looking at the names on those walls and looking at how they gave their lives in sacrifice, it is clear that our mateship has been forged in blood and shared sacrifice over the past 100 years for which we are always grateful. Our alliance, however, endures because our shared democratic values form a bedrock of trust and cooperation. The strength of our alliance is seen at every level. The people of Australia and the United States support each other. We consume each other's movies and culture. We attend each other's schools. And in non-COVID times, we visit each other's countries frequently. And we have long sent firefighters to help each other battle blazes in Queensland and in California. Our alliance is also strong at the national level. This past July, our Secretaries of State and Defense hosted their Australian counterparts for the 30th Annual Ausmin, which demonstrated how closely aligned we are on many issues facing the Indo-Pacific region. Foreign Minister Payne called it one of the most consequential Ausmins ever, and she and Defense Minister Reynolds traveled to Washington during a pandemic and quarantined upon return because of the importance they and we place on our bilateral relationship and the urgency of the challenges that we are tackling together <clears throat> we've already had productive exchanges between the biden administration and the australian government president biden has spoken to prime minister morrison as has vice president harris Secretary secretary blinken's call to foreign minister Payne was one of the very first calls that he completed, as was the call from Defense Minister Defense Secretary Austin to Defense Minister Reynolds. We anticipate a highly productive and successful Austin 2021 later this year, which will include a focus on US and Australian efforts to vaccinate the Pacific Islands against COVID-19 and set countries up for success economically as they recover from the pandemic-induced worldwide recession. As I am sure you have all seen in his first major foreign policy speech, Secretary Blinken named revitalizing ties with allies and partners a priority. He rightly noted that our alliances are what the military calls force multipliers. Our alliance with Australia has been and remains a force multiplier for both of our countries, allowing us to leverage each other's strengths to improve the futures of both of our citizens. Most recently on Friday, our leaders met in the Quad format to proclaim our shared values of democracy, a rules-based international order, peaceful resolution of disputes, and rule of law with prosperity for all. Let me talk for a couple minutes about the Quad. Australia and the United States are engaging in substantial regional multilateralism to work together on the many issues facing our region. The Quad is uniquely positioned to help lead the Indo-Pacific toward the more positive vision we all seek. Last week's Quad Summit was an historic moment and showcased the Quad's ability to pool our capabilities and build habits of cooperation to address the world's most urgent problems together. The administration is looking forward to deepening cooperation on combating COVID-19 and climate change. President Biden is deeply focused on the issue of expanding global vaccination, manufacturing, and delivery, which will all be critical to end the COVID-19 pandemic. The Quad's COVID-19 engagement is a joint partnership to boost vaccine manufacturing and strengthen vaccination delivery to benefit the entire Indo-Pacific. We are looking forward to working together on emerging technologies and messaging the positive impacts of Quad cooperation with you in the, across the Indo-Pacific. In addition to key summit deliverables on COVID-19, climate, and emerging technologies, the Quad will continue to advance coordination on issues including economic recovery, climate change, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, maritime security, counterterrorism, and countering disinformation. Our economic relationship is critical to both of our economies and it continues to grow. The United States is by far Australia's largest investor and most important economic partner, accounting for 7% of Australian GDP as much as the entire mining sector. More than 1,100 US owned firms operate in Australia, employing 320,000 Australians at salaries well above the national average. Much of that investment is increasingly going into advanced technology sectors, which will drive our economies over the coming decades. Aerospace, advanced manufacturing, biomedicine, and the digital economy. The technology deployment and skills development accompanying this investment is helping create the infrastructure for long-term economic growth, both in Australia and here at home in America. Just as importantly, the United States is the top destination for Australian investment overseas helping create good paying jobs and supporting communities across the united states we are also australia's third largest trading partner with bilateral trade nearly doubling since the signing of our free trade agreement in 2005. working together we are well placed to help lead the post-covid economic recovery and return to growth that will power our economies over the long term we also of course work very closely with Australia within APEC, the OECD, and the G20. Friends, uh, turning to regional issues, it is clear that the United States and Australia share a common vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific. Cooperation is critical. There is no global or regional challenge that can be met by any one nation acting alone. We are both strong supporters of ASEAN centrality and coordinate our support to ASEAN closely. We are both active in supporting a rules-based order and international law in the Indo-Pacific, including specifically as it relates to the South China Sea. We share Australia's views of the Mekong region as strategically important, and we have increased our coordination on assistance. This is especially true in helping these countries combat transnational crime and trafficking. We should support regional architecture like ACMEX, and the Mekong River Commission, and encourage ASEAN to take a stance on the Mekong region's (laughs) transnational challenges. Additionally, I want to note our ongoing efforts with Australia and others to urge the Burmese military to refrain from violence and restore the democratically elected government, particularly in light of the brutal and lethal attacks on protesters over the weekend. We are deeply saddened by reports that as many as 42 protesters were killed recently. The junta's violence against its own people is immoral and indefensible, and we will continue to work with the international community to take action to oppose the coup and the escalating violence. Friends and colleagues, the United States and Australia are both committed to delivering development assistance to our Pacific neighbors. We coordinate closely on development and support for the region to best leverage our collective efforts. In July last year, USAID and DFAT signed an updated MOU, solidifying joint efforts providing development assistance to the Indo-Pacific region, complementing the relative strengths of each of our countries. We are focused on developing our neighbors, to, on helping our neighbors improve their capacity so they can manage their own development effectively and swiftly. Last October, the United States and Australia, together with Japan, announced, announced our first project under our Trilateral Partnership for Infrastructure to fund construction of an internet cable to Palau. The United States has an extremely close relationship with the freely associated states of Palau, the Republic of Marshall Islands, and the federated states of of Micronesia. Our compacts of free association with these countries form the backbone of our enduring relationships. Through ongoing negotiations on agreements to extend and amend expiring provisions related to US economic assistance and access to certain United States federal programs and services, we are seeking to strengthen these partnerships which have contributed to the stability and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific. While the United States has historically focused much attention and foreign assistance on the freely associated states, we welcome Australia's plans to establish embassies in all three countries. Building up the diplomatic presence of open democratic countries, collaborating on the ground and creating more opportunities to cooperate on common goals benefits all of us. In this regard, let me turn for a moment to talk about climate change. Climate change poses serious, short, medium and long-term challenges for all the countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Climate change is a critical area where the United States and Australia are well placed to work together to help each other and our Pacific neighbors to face these challenges effectively. And demonstrate leadership in the region by reducing our own national emissions to help get the world on track to keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We are focused on protecting populations and helping them recover from increasing extreme weather events and other consequences, while adapting economies to reduce our carbon footprints and build a sustainable future. One of Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Secretary John Kerry's earliest calls was to Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction Angus Taylor. And we look forward to doing more with Australia on climate issues. Businesses, universities, researchers, and scientists across Australia and the United States are uniquely positioned to tackle the climate crisis and to help bring the Indo-Pacific region into a sustainable and prosperous future through innovation and a green energy revolution. And friends, lest anyone relegate climate change to merely a tech or a solar panel issue, let me reinforce We see climate change as an economic, humanitarian, environmental and security issue. President Biden included the risks of the acceleration of climate change and what it poses to the world in his speech to the Munich Security Conference precisely because this is an existential issue. No speech on US-Australia relations is complete without talking a little bit about the challenge from the People's Republic of China. Securing a free, open, transparent and prosperous Pacific will be one of the most consequential efforts we undertake. The United States and Australia's common vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific is predicated, predicated on a rules-based, rights-respecting, corruption combating context. Strong democracies which, which, which protect the self-determination of their people, ensure human rights are respected, defend freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and conduct business openly and transparently are critical for the pursuit of happiness for all of the people in the Indo-Pacific region. Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will travel March 18 to Anchorage, Alaska, United States of America, for discussions with the People's Republic of China, Director of the Office of the Central Commission for Foreign Affairs, Yang Jiechi, and State Counselor Wang Yi. These talks, which will take place after the Secretary of State's trip to Japan and Korea, and meetings with two of our closest regional allies are an opportunity to engage on a wide range of issues with the People's Republic of China, including ones where we have deep disagreements. And let me close in talking a little bit about COVID cooperation. Of course, the United States and Australia are working with each other closely on this. We're also working with our partners To help the Indo-Pacific manage the COVID-19 pandemic. This pandemic that has ground so much human activity to a halt and killed and harmed millions has left the Pacific relatively unscathed compared to other areas thanks to the swift action of so many Pacific countries. However, closed borders are not an indefinite solution in a globalized world and Australia and the United States are working to help our Pacific neighbors Fortify their healthcare systems strengthen public health responses plan mass vaccine campaigns and prepare economic recovery plans. I am very hopeful that our efforts will be successful and we will be able to have future discussions in person in the not too distant future. In closing permit me to summarize by saying that the strength of the United States Australia alliance are decades of cooperation on bilateral and regional challenges our economic ties that support tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs in both countries, our development assistance coordination across the Indo-Pacific, our formal and informal cultural exchanges, and the entirety of our alliance, our mateship, our concrete positive results for the people of the United States, the people of Australia, and for the people of the entire Indo-Pacific region. And after this conference, I'm going to get right back to work on helping build on these strengths. Thank you all very much. I know it's very early in Sydney. I, uh, I hope everybody has a flat white. Uh, Gordon and Simon, over back to you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ambassador. And now let me introduce uh, Gordon Flake, uh, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center. And in my opening remarks, I spoke about the span of what we're presenting in this report. And there's no way that the US Study Center could have addressed that breadth of policy agenda without the partnership and active contribution. The chapters contributed to this volume uh, from our colleagues at the Perth US Asia Center. So I'm delighted that yet again, Gordon is my wingman on this enterprise, and um, thank you Gordon and to your team. that where it is, 4.30 in the morning uh, in in
2: Perth, thank you. Indeed, thank you, Simon, and thanks to the the U.S. Study Center's team. It's been an absolute delight to kind of partner on the research and publication and on this launch here today. Uh, Ambassador Atul, normally uh, my standard operation is to invite people to visit us in Perth. You know, if you live in the farthest city on the planet on land away from D.C., you've got to be proactive about that. But these days, I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to be allowed back in, let alone someone from Washington. So it might be a while, but we look forward to having you either back at the United States Studies Center or at the Perth U.S.-Asia Center. Uh, Let me begin by acknowledging we have here the chairman of our board of directors, John Olson, who also serves as chairman of the American-Australian Association Limited here in in Australia, as well as uh, Craig Chapman, who's the chairman of the board of the American-Australian Association, uh, uh, Inc., in in New York. Craig did the quarantine. We're glad to have you down under here with us as well. The reason I I take time to introduce them is because they're so integral into what we're doing here today. Uh, Many of you may know the Perth U.S. Asia Center was launched just over eight years ago uh, based on some fundamental premises. Number one, the successful model of our sister center, the United States Studies Center, but perhaps more importantly, the understanding that you couldn't really understand Australia's relationship with the United States without understanding our shared interests, concern, values in this region, in the Indo-Pacific. The flip side, of course, is also true. You can't understand Australia's relationship with the region, with the Indo-Pacific, without understanding uh, American investment, American partnership, American alliances. And in putting together this project, as Simon mentioned rightly, looking through the chapters that you've got in front of you, I think you'll find that you're hard-pressed to find any of them that don't underline those fundamental assumptions. Uh, my colleague, Jeff Wilson, our director of research here, has contributed chapters on, on combating economic coercion, on attempts to entice the United States back into the TPP. Uh, Ambassador Keshep, I'm not sure whether that's your purview or not, but clearly that's a hope from us yeah, down here in Western Australia. Our new Canberra-based senior policy fellow, um, Haley Channer, has done a wonderful chapter on infrastructure. John Lee did a wonderful cha- chapter on supply chains. And so as, as, I think as you go through that report, you're going to find over and over again that that assumption that grounded the leadership of the American-Australian Association's actions really is, 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 is holding true. If we want to understand the alliance, we need to understand the region. If we want to understand the region, we need to understand the alliance. And I think this report goes a long way in doing it. Now, having said that, uh, the title of the report is State of the United States, and Evolving Alliance Agenda. We've got a great program for three different sessions focusing on, on the bilateral economic relationship, on the broader regional geoeconomic issues we're facing, on, on the security and alliance issues we're facing. But I thought we should also make sure that we kicked off with the first part of that, the state of the United States. Uh, when the United States Studies Center enticed Simon away from 20 years in Stanford, they brought with him you know, a, a career of deep expertise and understanding American politics and in understanding polling. And so you'll note at the very outset of this report is is a wonderful set of of new polls conducted by the United States Studies Center that helps us get a, a bit of understanding of the state of the United States right now and some of these key issues. And so before we launch into the formal program and go through a series of panels, we thought we'd give Simon some time to kind of lay out some of those polls. If you've been picking up the Australian media in the last couple of days with a great article in the Fin Review and others, you have seen some of this, but Simon, why don't we turn it over to you you, to kind of outline the polls themselves. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Um, And indeed, look, embedded in the title, um, the State of the United States, as, as Gordon foreshadowed, is exactly that aspiration. Before we get to the Alliance agenda, I think it's incumbent on us to understand what are the domestic political constraints or enablers back in the US, particularly um, after this rather torrid time the United States has been through politically, with the experience of COVID uh, and the transition to a new administration, wafer thin majorities for this administration in Congress. I don't think we can meaningfully uh, start to talk about what's likely to come and be possible through the through the Alliance, unless we're totally mindful of that. And indeed, large uh, parts of the Australian government are devoted to trying to figure that stuff out. Uh, our team um, in the embassy and, 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 and analysts back here in various parts of the government as well, that is very much their mission. Uh, and, uh, and indeed, um, we, we wanna contribute to that as well. And, 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 as, and as Gordon so kindly mentioned, um, it's an honor to be able to bring some of my professional expertise to bear on that one of the most pleasing parts of the job of, of running the United States Study Center. And we could only do it um, with the support of the board. Um, I've pitched these survey projects every year uh, to the board. Um, and my board chairman, Mark Bailey here and, and Heather Smith is here. And I'm going to forget, uh, there's Ian Sains is here. Thank you uh, for being here. And, and John Olson, of course, also serves on our board. Um, so important um, that we have the, the, their support in undertaking ambitious projects like this, so so thank you. Um, With that, um, can I drive the slide deck off this clicker? Yeah, thank you, okay. Okay, well, there's there's our agenda for today. We might come back to that in just a moment. We'll get into this this first uh, set of findings, and that is how does the US domestic, as I said, what's going on in US politics that's going to allow some of the things that are in Australia's interest to happen, or perhaps to be harder work than we might might, um, initially expect. So for a couple of years now, the United States Study Center has been asking a set of standard questions about American foreign policy and foreign policy priorities of the mass public. So these are mass opinion surveys in the United States. And for this first set of data, and we've got a few instances like this that I'll show you, we've got questions that we've asked in July of 2019 we asked again, just before the US presidential election. And then again, um, um, just after, uh, in January, just after um, President Biden was inaugurated. And so those three columns in each panel there refer to the findings uh, from, from, uh, from each wave of, of those surveys, if you will. And the key, fo- the key takeaway from this is that look, it's been a truism of um, American politics that there is a pretty strong bipartisan consensus on the urgency of the China question. Um, but that has just accelerated like crazy among among Trump voters to the point where um, what used to be reason, reason uh, re, reasonably similar distribution of beliefs about about China across partisan groups um, between President Trump's rhetoric Uh, uh, a tying China explicitly to the COVID pandemic, and then the election loss itself, Trump voters just accelerated away from the rest of their fellow Americans hardening in their attitudes towards China. In a few instances, you'll find democratic voters also more willing to say things like, China's influence on the United States is negative. America is too economically dependent on China that China is unfriendly or even an enemy of the United States. Look at that after the election, 92% of Trump voters describe China that way as unfriendly or an enemy. Um, That's up to 71% among Biden voters and 72% across the United States will use either of those two labels to describe China. Um, Saying uh, the United States and China are in a Cold War, or indeed that China has overtaken the United States as the world's technological leader there. There's much more, uh, that falls short of of a majority in the United States, um, but hovering close to it around in the 40% mark for for each partisan group. But yet again, there's a case where so much of the opinion change in the United States is driven by Trump voters. Um, And and that's no surprise, uh, as I said before, the way that particularly um, as, as COVID um, arrived in the United States and, and the way President Trump talked about its origins, and then of course, the election loss itself. So we enter uh, the post-election period, the, the first months of the Biden administration. Um, so the consensus is true. Yes, there is not a lot of disagreement about, about, um, about China um, and its, uh, its importance as a foreign policy priority, and and, and, and indeed, negative attributions after negative attribution across the board but the extent to which that is so um, prominent um, among trump voters is, is particularly striking um, isolationism though has also picked up now it's not at levels where i think there's there's anything perhaps especially to be concerned about it is tracking you know, this is a measure um, you ask people, um, America would be better off if and this sort of very folksy form of words if we just stayed at home and didn't concern ourselves with problems in other parts of the world. It's folksy because that question has been asked in American public since about 1950. Um, but our measures of it over the last couple of years, these numbers are rough aren't, aren't particularly alarming relative to that long um, historical uh, set of measures we've got. But what again is really eye popping is the way you've got this quite large partisan differential. Uh, only um, uh, 28% of, um, of Biden voters um, will, will say that uh, um, after the election, but it's up to 60% among Trump voters. And, and, and that suggests there is some partisan tension there. And where does that become relevant? That becomes relevant when it goes to Congress. Right, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We've got to set all this public opinion data against these wafer-thin margins uh, in, in Congress and the, and the possibility that, that, these, um, that these things might break down in Congress or be subject to some wedging um, um, as, as congressional politics heats up towards the midterms. That's where we're sort of going with some of this. Um, we also asked Americans to rate their foreign policy priorities. We gave them three foreign policy goals. One, working with allies to stand up to China is Dealing with climate, global climate change, or promoting democracy in other nations, and for each of those, we ask them to rate how important they were—very, fairly, not much, and so on. Of the two top uh, ratings, if we just look at how many Trump voters, um, and across all categories, we just pick off the very or fairly. Well, China again wouldn't be a surprise, given the earlier data I just showed you. Ninety-three percent of Trump voters say working with allies to stand up to China is very or fairly important. There's not much difference there. Biden, 88% of Biden voters say that, Um, but for Biden voters, nothing trumps climate change really. 97% of Biden voters say dealing with global climate change is very or fairly important. And you can see the partisan tension there. Only 30% of Trump voters make that assessment. We've got some real partisan daylight there when it comes to dealing with climate change as a foreign policy priority. Um, less love for democracy promotion. Um, that That is uh, unambiguously sort of not as important as the as the other two for both partisan groups. And we can then, for each individual respondent, we can do a few things. We can look at how often um, did climate change actually was unambiguously the top or equal top issue. And that's on the left hand side of that table. And that's table one in the report at page 13. Um, Again, you see this intense partisan differentiation here. Um, For Biden voters, uh, for two thirds of them, climate is top or equal top on their priorities. That's only only the case for 8% of Trump voters. Um, For 83% of, of, of Trump voters, China is top or equal top, but critically for Biden voters, China working with allies to stand up uh, to China is top or their equal top priority of the three we gave them for only about a quarter of them, for only about 26%. So again, some real partisan color there um, with, with climate, again, just more evidence of how climate just pops to the top of the democratic rank and file uh, when you ask them to list their priorities. Yes, China is important when you give it to them sort of on its own, but once you start putting, stacking the priorities up against one another, it's, it's so clear that climate um, um, will, will, if it ever came to a trade-off, at least among democratic rank and file, uh, that that climate um, dominates um, uh, just working with allies to stand up to China as a um, foreign policy priority. And and that's, again, I think that's an important set of uh, context to have in mind when you think about how this is gonna percolate through uh, the American political system, how much foreign policy can be made independently of public opinion, and a lot can and does. And and how much you've got to go to Congress and hold coalitions together and get budgets and and and, and perhaps on occasion even have to get support um, across the aisle uh, for certain things.
2: With uh, right and so on the
0: right-hand side of this graph. I, do, I want to show you one thing that did get a little bit of media attention over the weekend. We, um, surveys are cheap talk. I will, I will cop to that at, at the outset. But what we asked people to do here, we, we, we gave people the choice of buying a cell phone, a mobile phone, of a mobile phone not made in China or a mobile phone made in China. But we buried the cost of the not made in China phone. It got more expensive successively. Uh, And we we randomly changed the the price premium. How much are you willing to pay for a product not made in China? And again, for Trump voters, if there's no difference in price, 100% of them will take the not made in China phone. It's not often in survey research you see 100%, um, but there it is. Um, But as the premium of decoupling, frankly, of not buying uh, you know a ubiquitous piece of technology for that to be a not made in China product as that price premium goes up support does fade away but but look at these numbers in absolute terms yes they slope down as you'd expect um the laws of uh <laughs> of supply and demand of are of, of, uh, 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 working um, but even at a $500 price premium, um, roughly three quarters of Americans say they prefer the not made in China phone. Among Biden voters, that's a little lower down at 60%. And among Trump voters, that's as high as 90%, even at the $500 price point. And we've we've um, hit these data a little hard. Uh, that's not just because Biden voters are typically, you might say, well, they've got less income, they're more price sensitive, um, it's, it's actually, it seems to w- withhold any, any, further analysis about looking at those um, income effects. Um, but it does show to us um, that at least, and again, perhaps talk on surveys is cheap. Um, if push came to shove and that $500 did have to leave someone's wallet, would we see these same numbers? Um, but it does suggest at least um, the public opinion here suggests that that America is perhaps willing to bear uh, the costs of, of uh, competition with China uh, if particularly going right down to a a ubiquitous everyday piece of technology. Um, So so that was a a revealing um, um, piece of data to get, but again, the overall levels are high, but the partisan gradient is noteworthy. Um, There is a 30 point difference um, by the time you get up to $500 uh, between Trump voters and Biden voters. The last thing I wanna show you from the public opinion data is that we can't, underestimate the depth of partisan animus and the difficulty that means for getting anything bipartisan. The, the COVID relief package went through the Senate on a strict party vote. There was no Republican at the end of the day voting for final passage. And, and, and the uh, Democrats had to make a few concessions too. And it need only be one Senator when you need all of them. And so Joe Manchin um, insisted on minimum wage uh, being taken out. Now, a lot stayed in that package, but we can't, I think it's, it's, it's really hard for Australians, I think, to understand the depths of this. So the way we thought we'd help Australians understand this was to do the following exercise. We surveyed some Australians and we asked them to do the same exercise as we put before our American respondents, and that is to rate the parties on a, on a zero to 100 uh, thermometer scale, where zero is cold and you don't like the party and 100 is warm and hot, and you really like the party, and 50 is lukewarm, you're in the middle. And in the United States, um, um, uh, Biden voters give a 13 rating to the Republicans, they give an 80 to their own party, so a party difference of 57. Trump voters only rate the Republican Party 63. That's informative in and of itself. But look at that the median rating of the Democratic Party from a Trump voter is 5 for a partisan gap of 58. That's what negative partisanship looks like. Whatever we've got in Australia, it's not remotely close. The partisan gaps we're seeing in Australia on exactly the same sort of task are on the order of 20 points smaller. Um, Labor Party uh, voters will rate the coalition parties at 38, their own party at 76. Coalition voters give their own parties um, an 80 rating, but they give the Labor Party 46. It's just a tad below lukewarm um, for a a difference of of, of 34. Um, um, Trump voters are giving the out party a rating of five. Uh, Coalition voters in Australia give the out party a rating of 46. Whatever you think about partisanship in Australia at the moment, it's got nothing on the United States. And this is the key thing about American public opinion at this moment. It has never been like this since you've probably got to go back to 1890. And I'd suggest we're even starting to head back to almost um, to, to, um, you know, even earlier back closer in time to the Civil War, to find a point where being a partisan in the United States increasingly means the following, not that I just like my side of politics, but I dislike the other side of politics. That is a belief now that is not just among people who are political junkies, that is in mass opinion data now. And that sets, I think we've got to calibrate expectations now about what's possible out of this Congress uh, as a result and think through what that might mean for Australian national interests. what it is we'd like to see come through the US Congress What is realistic in this environment? And that's where we turn to the the assessment of what might come through Congress. Um, This is a a graph to show you just how thin the margins are. 2020 is highlighted in the middle. Um, um, It's 50-50 in the US Senate and Biden has a House of Representatives where the incumbent president hasn't had such a narrow margin um, for a long, long time. An incoming president, yes, on paper, they have the House, they have the Senate. Um, But there is no room, um, very little margin for error. And around the US Study Center, our assessment is, um, and this is where I think there's an implication for Australia, um, 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 a couple of implications for Australia that we flesh out uh, in the discussion. Uh, Number one, um, meaningful climate change uh, uh, policy, I think, is not going to happen domestically in the United States. It will be executive orders around things like that Biden's already announced, around things like the federal government will buy more electric vehicles, uh, the EPA will get some, some teeth back. But legislating aggressive targets through the Congress, I, I, it's hard to see that happening. I don't see that getting through the House given the narrowness of those margins. Now, what does that mean? I think that throws, putting the pieces together here, it throws the focus back on the international arena as a way to satisfy this deep policy appetite among the democratic base for some action here. Part of the US being a responsible and, and, and um, earning its global reputation back um, will be, will be through, um, through through climate change um, statements and actions in the international domain, because I, it's very hard to see degrees of freedom for the Democrats to move um, uh, aggressively, um, uh, aggressively on that through the Congress. And that's something, you know, obviously um, Australia will be keeping a, a, a very close eye on. Um, we further assess that, um, look, if you put the two positions of the governments up uh, beside each other at the moment, some of the early statements from the Biden White House um, against, um, for instance, um, I, I just next door the the, uh, the speech that Minister Taylor gave um, late last year, I believe it was. Um, the phrase technology, not taxes, um, that's much more in the Australian uh, lingo on this issue. is actually not an unreasonable characterization, I think of where the US system uh, will land on this. Um, and, and you heard the ambassador speak about, I think the way that the two governments are likely to charge ahead on technologies and research partnerships and really getting going on that. I think that's much more um, doable and fertile terrain given our assessment of the lay of the land uh, politically, both domestically in both countries, frankly, um, and, and where will be a place uh, this can land in a, in a meaningful way. The flip side is um, are, um, are things where we can see the US Congress agreeing in ways that are, uh, are favorable to US interests, uh, to Australian interests rather. Uh, and that is around defense uh, budgets. Um, we assess that, um, that um, There, it will be possible to build off that sense of urgency of the China challenge to link a lot of the spending uh, being proposed around defense and indeed as as we opened up today this linking it to innovation and renewing the American economy. um, We expect that there will be majorities for that and inside in both chambers uh, and inside those majorities. Um, And and this is where it does get a little more nitty gritty, and we'll have more to say on this uh, in our third session today, Uh, implications for the defence budget, and in particular, um, uh, dedicated funding for uh, um, more spending in the Indo-Pacific, and and the forms that that might take. But um, when you look at the big picture around American public opinion, um, and and the urgency of the China challenge, there is enough there, more than enough there, we assess, uh, to build a... uh, a majority um, in 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 and and you could even lose some Democratic votes uh, and um, and get enough Republicans over when it ca- when it comes to a defense budget, um, and, and so that's the other assessment we make and lay out uh, in here. Finally, the last one would be infrastructure spending, um, but the list is getting short now. Uh, there is there is very little else in this very aggressive uh, domestic policy agenda that Biden has put forth that we see. Um, being able to get through the U.S. Senate, uh, but after COVID relief, infrastructure spending and and, and, and a defense budget um, with a boost perhaps um, for presence in the Indo-Pacific from the United States. Those are uh, perhaps two things where we're uh, very much in, in, in Australia's interest that we see those happen. Um, there's some takeouts from our political lay of the land. Um, 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 The good news for Australia, I think, is is, is our assessment um, around this appetite for meeting the China challenge comprehensively, um, for for this linkage between uh, uh, Build Back Better, uh, the domestic recovery program for the Biden administration, and explicitly linking that to foreign policy goals. That's extremely encouraging and and, and and, and enjoys bipartisan support. In the United States, the devil will be in the details to see how much that translates into um, kit um, um, and presence uh, uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but that's enough from me. Thanks, Gordon.
2: Fantastic. Simon, you, we might, we've only got about 10 minutes left. We've still got Ambassador Keshap with us for the last 10 minutes, but uh, that presentation was a, a perfect encapsulation of your tagline in an analysis of America insights for Australia, because you, you really have to understand what's happening on the ground there to understand you know, the wonderful speech we heard from Ambassador Keshop and and to understand the three different panels that we're going to be talking about going forward. Let me just make a short observation that I noticed. Um, uh, this is the first election over the weekend that I have voted in as an Australian citizen in Western Australia. And as I'm looking at your, 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 your data on political polarization, I just kind of wonder whether they included Western Australia as part of the Australian data, uh, because there's a remarkable result over the weekend there with uh, the Premier Mark McGowan getting... About 88% of the seats in in the parliament, which is a a remarkable shift. Um, But then again, I think you're probably right in terms of the demonization of the other. It's something very different in politics here. Um, I want to bring Ambassador Kesha back into this conversation uh, because we've had a really robust conversation of of American domestic politics and attitudes. Uh, And yet one of the things that I heard in your remarks, uh, if you can still hear me, uh, is the focus on the quad. and, And... like I say, we, we'll, we'll thank you personally and through you, the administration, for for making such a timely introduction to our, our discussion today. But to having a quad meeting over the weekend, having a quad meeting that uh, focused not just on security, but focused heavily on, on the issues that you listed on, on COVID response, on vaccine production. And for, in my understanding, the first time ever we've had a, an op-ed in the Washington Post authored by the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Can you imagine being the op-ed our, our editor when that came in across your desk and tried to say, ah, oh, did I run this or not? I'm not quite sure who are these guys, right? But it is a remarkable demonstration of unity on a whole range of issues. And so, Ambassador Keshav, if I can bring you back uh, and, and and ask you to kind of tie these two conversations together, the conversation you just heard from Simon in terms of the real challenges and the priorities the administration has in COVID response, the successful passage of of the COVID Relief Act, uh, the ongoing questions about, uh, about uh, um, uh, infrastructure, to this remarkably forward leaning statement that we saw in the Quad. How would you tie the two of those together, and how do we need to understand uh, the U.S. domestic situation vis-a-vis uh, the remarks that you kindly made for us today?
1: Well, Professor Flake, thank you very much. Uh, you've given me the entire football pitch to try to run around on. So hopefully I'll be able to dribble it in and score a goal. Or do you guys play cricket out there? I'm never sure. Uh, but the, uh, uh, I really appreciated Professor Jackman's uh, presentation. And let me just start by saying that unlike certain other countries, uh, we Americans appreciate it when our friends talk about us and offer us some insights about ourselves. We, um, we believe in radical transparency. Uh, We believe in free and open democratic systems, and we're delighted when our our true friends uh, point out things about ourselves that we perhaps need to hear or perhaps could use the advice or or insights of of somebody who's a little bit outside our system. We don't get defensive. Uh, You know, I've uh, always felt very proud as an American diplomat that uh, every taxi I've ever been in, in 50, 60 countries around the world, the taxi driver knows all about American domestic politics. Uh, and that is, I think, proof of our uh, transparency, and I hope also the source of our resilience as a country. Uh, I was born in Africa. I uh, grew up for in my childhood in Africa. I spent a lot of time in Asia and Europe as a child, and then, of course, a professional career uh, around the world. And I will tell you, America is a, is a society that is constantly innovating and reinventing itself. And we're kind of like that wobble doll where you punch it and then it sort of wobbles back up at you. You know, there's a lot of resiliency. And I think that's true of democracies. Now, here's where I try to dribble back over to uh, the other side of the pitch, which is about the quad. The great thing about the quad is that it's, it paints a vision. And our four democracies have a very bright, and very ambitious vision for the Indo-Pacific. It is not exclusive. It is not against anybody. Indeed, it is inclusive, and it uh, seeks a brighter future, not only for our citizens of our four democracies, but for all of the people of the Indo-Pacific. Why else would we focus on vaccines? Why else would we focus on climate change? Why else would we focus on ensuring economic recovery? Uh, when our countries get together, they re- represent the sentiments of our people, voters, citizens who talk to each other uh, and have views and opinions, sometimes differing, certainly. But I think when it comes to foreign policy, the other great thing about our countries is there is a, a sort of uh, national spirit of purpose. And that is why the US Australia relationship has remained so strong through the years. Uh, I, I think uh, Professor Jackman might have mentioned the early signaling of the Biden-Harris administration and how strong it has been on the Indo-Pacific and on issues of concern, that's not an accident. That is done absolutely on purpose and with careful thinking about what our values are and what we want to telegraph to our friends and partners around the world. Another great thing about the United States, and I think it's true of Australia and, and, and increasingly other partners and friends, is that we have an unbeatable and wonderful partnership of allies and friends around the world. It is such a force, uh, uh, you know, uh, it leverages our forces and leverages our values in such important ways. Uh, It's a a force multiplier that I think a lot of others may not have and may even envy. And in this regard, the fact that the Quad is working together, uh, these are people from, uh, you know, there's like more than, I think, 2 billion of us if you count up all the all the numbers maybe a little bit less 1.7 1.8 billion that's a lot of people dedicated to democracy to transparency to a free and open indo pacific to prosperity for all extremely inclusive vision and on this i think it's great that the us and australia have a strong a bilateral relationship as we have. We obviously love the energy that the Japanese and the Indians bring in. But uh, I'm always optimistic. I think as an American diplomat, you have to be optimistic. Uh, uh, Colin Powell said perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. So uh, I see certainly that there are, you know, issues with uh, politics everywhere. But at the end of the day, we recognize that national interests are abiding and national values are largely abiding as well. Over.
2: Well, thank you. I would note that um, in October of last year, many of you remember that there was a meeting of quad foreign ministers in Tokyo. And in Australia, we used to joke that you can tell how important a meeting is by the willingness of our federal ministers to do two weeks of quarantine coming back home. And so the fact that in July of last year, our defense minister, Linda Reynolds, our foreign minister, Maurice Payne, went to the United States for the Osmond ministerials and came back to do two weeks of quarantine was telling. In October, just weeks before the US presidential election, at a very sensitive time, the fact that Maurice Payne was willing to go to Tokyo to come back in quarantine, that the Indians were willing to go to Tokyo, and then Secretary Pompeo went to Tokyo. At the time, my quip was that that meeting at the Quad said far more about Chinese overreach than American outreach. Uh, I would actually turn that notion on its head for this most recent meeting over the weekend. That has a lot more to do with American outreach and deep receptivity on the part of australia of india and japan so we we applaud that uh let me also on behalf of us here in australia thank the united states for the tremendous support for uh senator matthias Corman, or former senator matthias Corman, who's been uh, elected to be the secretary general of the oecd american support was key in that decision we obviously have a bit of a parochial view on that in western australia but to have Someone go from the city that kept the lights on for John Glenn to the city of lights is something that we see deeply in the interest of Australia, uh, but also of the United States. And it also represents kind of the theme that we're going to be going over today. It represents Australia and the U.S. working together to get the Developed Economies Club, you know, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to turn its attention towards the Indo-Pacific. And to have an Australian Federal Minister who served as Minister of Finance for seven years and was at the forefront of many of the fundamental issues that the OECD is going to be facing over the next decade in Paris, working together with the United States and representing Australia, not representing Australia, but as an Australian uh, representing the OECD, I think it's is a really helpful development. So thank you so much for America, uh, America's support on that Ambassador, it was wonderful. Now, I think we, we've actually already gone over our time. We're, we're moving into a, a coffee break, and then we're going to come back with, with three separate panels, again, focusing on, on the bilateral economic relationship, focusing on geoeconomics, and focusing on security. But on behalf of the Perth US Asia Center, on behalf of, of, of the United States Studies Center, I hope everybody here would, would join us in welcoming, um, welcoming the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Ambassador Atul Keshav, for, for his remarks and for that, uh, that wonderful optimism. Uh, that, that does have legs here in Australia as well. So thank you so much, Ambassador Kesha, appreciate it.